This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Every time I fought, it's my dad that I was fighting, and I wanted to beat him. And that's how I looked at it when I was doing it, and it was the easier way for me to get into it. Growing up, my dad beat me all my life. Like, it made it a really, really tough childhood that I had because uh, everywhere I went, it was violence over violence my entire youth. I had no refuge. Even my career, the job that I had, I had to show everyone that I was a gladiator, that nothing was affecting me, I was afraid of anything. I was a great actor for years, not to show everyone anything, and showing everyone that I was sane, when often on the inside I wasn't. Before George Larac was a sports commentator and a political leader, he was a notorious enforcer in the NHL. But George had a secret. Underneath the surface, he hated fighting and struggled to justify the brutality. There was only one way he could find the aggression he needed. Every time he fought on the ice, in his mind, it was his dad who he was up against. George grew up in a strict household where discipline was severe and at times abusive. As a child of Haitian immigrants in Montreal, he felt the pressure to succeed in their new home. But far too often, his father's harsh parenting crossed the line. For a long time, his battles off the ice were like a weight on his chest. The trauma stemming from his childhood abuse, racism he experienced in hockey, and the expectation to be a gladiator for his teammates eventually led him to fall into a depression. He couldn't see a way out, and at one point, he contemplated suicide. That's when he decided to get help. Through therapy, George was finally able to identify the sources of his anxiety and make peace with his past. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindside. Mental health, sports, and life. What was it like growing up in your house? And particularly because you have a unique background compared to many Canadians being a child of immigrants. Well, even though I was born in Montreal, my parents were born in Haiti. And growing up in Haiti was rough. It was back in the Duvalier times with the Tonkotom Akut. And for a family to grow there, if you had dreams, um, you know, it was not going to happen in Haiti because too much poverty, too much crime. So they decided to move to, uh, to Montreal, to Canada. My dad took an engineer job in, in Sawal Tracy. It's a urban city that is about an hour away from Montreal. And when uh, we all moved there, the whole family, and I was a kid, I was like, Four years old. I was born in Montreal, but I don't remember much. But I remember most of my youth in, in Tracy because I was four and on, and we lived there for like 11 years. But to move in a town where we're the only black family, we all experienced racism in the higher degree that you could ever imagine. Because I was born in Montreal, like every kid, I wanted to play hockey. And that had it to the fact that not just that in that city we experienced racism to some people that never seen black people before, but I picked a sport back then that was truly labeled as a white man's sport. And uh, the fact that, you know, I faced racism 
outside the rink and at the rink because I was obviously the only black kid playing hockey, it made it a really, really tough childhood that I had because uh, as a kid, you can never be prepared for that. It was tough. It was rough. My parents did not want me to play hockey because of that environment. And they're like, if we see that racism is affecting you at the rink, then we're going to pull you out of hockey. So when it was affecting me, I couldn't show it to them. So think about it. I'm a kid. I'm seven years old. I get called the N-words by parents in the stands because my parents, they thought I was going to quit. But I had a dream and I wanted to make it and I wanted to prove my parents wrong and I wanted to prove everybody else wrong that they call me the N-word that despite everything they could say, they weren't going to make me stop and I, I was going to achieve my dream. So I'm a kid, seven, eight, nine years old. My parents don't understand, so it's easier to call me names, right? So I get called names by parents in the stands, by players from other team. And when I go home, I can't show my parents that it's affecting me because they pulled me out of hockey. So at night, sometimes I would cry my pillow so they couldn't see it, so I could unleash some frustration just so they don't hear me because I'm done with hockey if they see that. That's how I grew up. That's my entire childhood. It made me a stronger person, obviously, today, but at time it was tough because I was alone. Nobody was there to support me. It was insane. It almost feels sometimes when I look back that I didn't have a childhood because I had to deal with all that negative stuff. What you just described sounds particularly isolating because, first of all, it's your core. You're a Black man. And then not to be able to share it because of your drive to play hockey, it seems like, to me, a step beyond any other story we've heard. You know, there's something that happened when I was 10 years old that helped me out a lot. So I remember one time I was at home, and for the first time after a couple of years of, of living this, in my mind, I was like, not that I was going to quit, but I was really close to like, man, I don't think I could do this anymore. And by magic, my sister got a collection of books. It was a kid version of... Uh, different autobiography from different people that, that achieved something great in life. There was the story of Jackie Robinson. When I took the book, I didn't know who Jackie Robinson was. But I read his book. It was a child version of it with some image and stuff. And Jackie was going through what I was going through right now to make it to Major League Baseball. I didn't no longer felt like a victim. I was like, okay, I understand. This is a normal process I'm going through to make it to the NHL. Think about it. I'm 10 years old. And I rationalized it that way, saying, well, Jackie went through this, so I have to go through this to make it in the NHL, to be one of the few black people to make it there. You know, my, my story of resiliency, like if you look at the odds of making it to the NHL when your parents are born in Haiti, it's 0.00001%. And then if you talk about the odds of growing in a, in a city, you only black family, nobody wants you to play, add more zero. I didn't look at the chance and say it's not going to happen. At what point did you realize that, you know, you were always one of the best players, you were good at hockey, you were good at all sports, and that, you know, you might be able to make a go at hockey? When I was a kid, I was the best in all the sport that I played in, the best in all the sport. But because of racism, that's hockey that I picked. Since I was a kid, I was a goal scorer in hockey, and it did happen in the town that I was in that my dad had a hard time finding a coach because some coach just didn't want me on their team, which was nuts. It's insane. And, but I didn't know about it. My dad kind of told me after that later because uh, 
you know, as a kid, uh, you know, when you're really young, that's why my dad kind of dropped and he dropped out of hockey. He didn't want me to play anymore because like, you know what, this is insane. My kid can't even find a team. Co they don't even want to coach him, right? So um, at that time, it, it was insane. But my dad had so much of that racism in that, in that Sorrel Tracy town that when we moved to Montreal, when I was 13 years old, everything changed because there's more diverse community. I wasn't an alien anymore uh, for a lot of people when I was playing hockey. So I played Bantam AA and I had a really good year. And when I got drafted as an underage 15-year-old to the queue in a Quebec league, I knew even more, more so that I was going to play in the NHL because I play, usually you get drafted at 16 years old in the queue, I got drafted at 15 after one year playing Bantam AA and after drafting the queue, I knew I was getting really close to my dream. So at that time, I knew that uh, all the effort was going to come true. George, when it was clear that you were exceptional, did that change the attitude of the crowds of the community towards you? Before we moved to Montreal, no, they hated even more. They called me the N-word even more when I was scoring goals. They did not, even my own teammates, tons of them were jealous. It was not fun. Once we moved to Montreal, it was not as bad because, again, it's the environment that I grew up in. And that double-A le like level that I was playing, a really high-level performance level, it was completely different. So I didn't, infer I didn't experience racism, not even close to what I did in minor hockey, which is crazy because you would think that minor hockey parents would be more silent because you're kids and when you get older it'd be worse but me the older that i got the better that it got so culturally extremely different when people immigrate to a new country often they hold on to their culture even more strongly that they don't even move forward like they would if they stayed in haiti for instance or in india wherever you've come from what was it like being raised by haitian immigrants as far as their the way that they approach life, how is it different than Canadian kids' experience and, and how did that impact you? Oh, man, that, that, that's, uh, th this is going to shock a lot of people. But in Haiti, when they go to school, the teacher is allowed to hit you. They hit you with a whip. They're allowed to. If you don't listen, if you have bad marks or whatever, they hit kids. So the way I was raised... I was raised by, by the belt. My parents, that's how he raised me, my brother, and my sister, he would hit us. He would hit us if we didn't have good marks. He would hit us if we were not disciplined enough, if we did something wrong. He would hit us 50 times with the belt if we did something wrong. That's how we were raised, with violence. And uh, I didn't know back then there was a phone number you could call when you're getting, now there's DPG and all those numbers. Kids are calling if your parents yell too much at you and stuff. Immigrants, we don't know that stuff. And, you know, we're afraid of our parents, right? And uh, that's how I was raised. And uh, I remember the first time I went to school, my parents asked the teacher, uh, what do you use to discipline the children? And then the teacher was like, she didn't understand my dad's question. And, and my dad told me this, this thing so proudly and stuff when he had this conversation because he's so proud of how he raised us because he think that everything that we are today is because of how he raised us, how severe it was, right? But, and then the teacher didn't understand. My dad said, well, you should use a, he brought a whip with him to give to the teacher. Teachers like, we're not allowed to hit children. He's like, why? My dad didn't understand the difference of mentality here. He said, we were too soft on, on, on the kids. And also, education for my parents was so important. 
I remember when, when I went back home and, you know, we bit, you get a bit of homework. My dad gave me much more than we had in schools because he thought we didn't have enough because in Haiti, it's more. So when I was in school, I didn't learn anything because I did so much homework with my dad that I knew everything before. So I have crazy average of 90, 95 because my dad was going through Everything we were learning, so we were well advanced. And my dad was like that. He said, the only thing that Shakur your future is, is cooling. So my dad demanding always at school that we were like always perfect. And he was so severe. And uh, if we have good marks, he would hit us again. 80s was not good enough. It has to be higher mark all the time. So think about the fact that not just growing in the fact that I had to face racism, but at home, I was afraid of my dad. And, he, and I'm, I'm the one that, that got beat more because I challenged him more because I was the older kids and I was more the defiant ones. And also, I played a sport he didn't want me to play. So I think it was a bit more anger with the fact of that on me and stuff. So so I was afraid of him at home. I was getting called the N-words outside of home, the N-word at the rink. I had no refuge. Everywhere I went, I was like, it was violence over violence my entire youth. It, it was insane. And... Uh, that actually affected me more the way my dad raised us than, than the hockey and the racism thing because he was my dad. And I hated him for years because of that. And, and I confronted him one time when I was older. I was um, about 18 years old when my brother and my sister. I was like, Dad, why, did you, uh, why were you hitting us like this? And my dad said, if I would have known that you guys would have challenged the way that that was raising you guys, I should have hit, hit, hit you guys even more. My dad said he read a book, Psychology, that said that when you, raise, when you raise children, kids should be afraid a little bit more of their dad for their uh, education so it's important, so they listen more. Because my dad used to say, parenting is like, is the responsibility of the parents. In term, like when he sees kids that are crying, that are spoiled in, in malls, or kids that are overweight, my dad was like, this is wrong. This is because they're not well-educated. My dad took pride of the fact that his kids were, were in shape, were good in school. He would force us to go to the track in the weekend and run laps. So we stayed in shape. So it was insane. At 6 in the morning, we'd get up, and he'd take the timer, and he would time us. We grew up almost like we were soldiers when we were at home. That's how severe that he was. And most of my cousins is, grew up the same way. Maybe the dad was not as severe as my dad, but... Most immigrants, most Haitian immigrants, they, they grew up with the belt. And uh, that's the way it was. And Haitian food, the culture and everything, even though we're the only black families, we kept that where we were growing up in, in that urban city. You know, my, my dad and my mom would cook Haitian food all the time. And, uh, you know, that's what we were used to. I didn't discover fries and, and, and all that junk until later because my dad thought it was bad food. Like, you know, like, the shepherd's pies and all that stuff that, that people would do. We only eat that if we went to a friend's place and stuff, but which was almost weird sometimes because we got, we got to be used to this stuff later on. But when we were kids, surely it's not the type of stuff we would eat. One little thing I wanted to ask, which I think is a big thing, before we segue into to hockey for a bit, is where's your mom in all this? You're growing up with a very strong, domineering dad, very demanding dad, but I didn't hear you mention where your mom fit in. Was yeah. she like the kids? Was she worried or afraid? Yeah, my mom was afraid. Uh, it was not good. You know, it, 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 it was terrible, man, because my mom, 
Never said anything when my dad beat us. She couldn't say anything. My dad was cheating on my mom. It was rough with my mom. It was not a good environment. My, my parents divorced. They divorced when I was 12 years old when they divorced. And a crazy thing happened. When we got divorced, my parents fought for custody. And, you know, they, they went back and forth in court. They were fighting for custody. And then the judge didn't really know where to put us. And then one day he brought the kids to court. And because I was the oldest, the, the, the judge went to me and he's like, uh, you know, because you're the oldest, I'm going to ask you, where do you think it's better for you and your brother and sister to go live with? And the fact that he asked me the question, right? My brother and my sister in their mind, just the fact they for sure they thought I was going to sit with my mom. And because my mom was sweet. She never said anything. We weren't afraid of her. But she, again, she couldn't say anything what my dad did and stuff. And, and when the judge asked me the question, I don't know why to this day. I don't know why I did that, but I thought about it and I was like, okay, my dad is crazy, but he's disciplined. At least with him, we're going to veer in the right way. We're, we're, we're going to be somebody one day because schooling and discipline is so important. And my mom is so nice. She's so soft that we were rubble sometimes. We were hyperactive and I don't know if she could have controlled us. So I told the judge that it'd be better if we went with my dad. My brother and my sister wanted to kill me. I can't believe I said that, but I was like, I was a kid. He asked me the question. I was like, even though with my mom it would have been easier, I was like, with my dad, is just that education is going to be better for us. I said that to the judge. We went there. My dad is like, it's like for him, it was just normal that we would go there because he didn't even say thank you or anything. I think he beat me the, the next day for something stupid. Like it was all forgotten what happened the day before. But I thought that for a future, it was the best decision to make. To this day, I was like, I can't believe that I made that decision when I was a kid, but it was the right decision to do. But as a kid, why didn't I go the other way around? I don't understand that because I know for a fact if I didn't make that decision, I wouldn't have played in the NHL. But... Again, as a kid, how do I know that? How did a 12-year-old kid would know that when he talked to a judge? Why didn't I just go the way that I knew I, we weren't going to get beat again? I don't know where that strength came from because it was such an important decision back then. But, but yeah, my mom, I talked to her after they, after they got separated. She told me all the abuse that she got when they were together. And it, it was insane because for years, I kind of was a bit mad at her for not doing anything or stopping him. But now I quite I understood after why she couldn't. And a lot of immigrant parents is like that. The woman, they can't say anything. They just take it. It's just abuse. That's the way it is in their country. And they come here. And, and actually, the reason why they got divorced is because my mom, growing up in Montreal, uh, being friends with, with people born in Montreal, my dad coming back late all the time and, and going partying, the cheating and all that stuff, my mom would talk to her friends about it in the beginning like it was nothing because it's accepted back in those countries, but in Quebec, it's not. So her mentality started to change like a true Canadian born in Canada, not accepting that when if those stuff was happening in Haiti, she'd probably still be with him today. So... The mentality of them growing in Montreal started to change and they started to learn about the rules and how it was different and the culture and all some of the stuff you could do down there you can do here. 
And because of all her friends, her surrounding, give her the strength to understand this is wrong, you deserve better than this. And with all her friends helped, that's how she got divorced. So that's where my story of my mom goes into all this. I know there was a point where you really had to deal with what happened in the past with your dad's behavior, with how he treated you, your siblings, your mom. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how it has shifted over time? I really want to know how you work through that, where you yeah. got to that point of knowing I have to do this and how that's been for you. Yeah. So when I got a bit older, I started hitting my dad when I started playing in the NHL because another thing that happened too with my dad is one time I'm playing junior hockey and uh, I'm a bigger guy and I get into my first fight and my dad actually happens to come and watch that game and uh, I get I get hurt in that fight. There's a vein that kind of blow up in my nose and I'm bleeding on the ice, lots of blood and my dad comes to the dressing room to come and see me. He sees this kid bleeding for the first time and my dad looks at me and is like, what are you going to do now? Are you going to hide in your mom's skirt and you're going to become a man? That's what my dad said when, when I'm covered in blood. So when that happened, the fact that I didn't like the way that he raised us, and now I'm a bit older, I'm 17 years old, and he says that to me, I was like, that's it. You know, every time I fought after that, that's my dad's face that I saw every time I fought someone. But hitting someone takes so much energy. And I knew that, it was affecting me because I hated my dad. And every time somebody mentioned the word dad, or I saw somebody with their dad, it made me sick of my dad. And it made me feel wrong. So for years, I didn't talk to my dad, close to 10 years. So I know you as, I mean, I played against you, which thanks, I'm sure you scored on me a few times, which probably didn't help me. Um, <laughs> but you're such a kind, caring, empathetic, like, like part of the reason that, I asked you to come on was because of where you've been and how you've transitioned, not even transitioned, but you still kept your main core of who you are. Like you're such a kind, empathetic, you'll help anybody. And it's just, I'm so sorry for what you went through. I, I, I really am. Thank you. And I, I think back, like your dad, you're a big man. Like your dad must have been a big man too. And that must have been terrifying as a child. Was there a point where you went back at him? When I was 15 years old, my dad had a girlfriend and he would, uh, night when we would leave, we would take advantage and go out. Like I would take, a, I say we, my brother and my sister didn't do that, they were too afraid of him. But when my dad would leave to go to his girlfriend, I would go out with my friend and party. One time I was 15 years old, I got back home and my dad was there. So my dad suspected that I was doing that. And when I got home at three in the morning, he threw, uh, we had to go up the stairs to go to the condos where we live in. He threw a chair down the stairs that I got in my face. It cut me, I have a bit of stitches under my nose. I went up, I brought the chairs back up and I didn't cry. Uh, by the way, I stopped crying. I think at eight years old, I didn't cry anymore. When my dad, I was insensitive. Because of all this, I'm more of a rationalized person because I had to numb my emotion at such a young age, not to be hurt that I have a hard time dealing with emotion today. And I still consult uh, to help myself with this because it's so hard. But anyway, I go up and I see my dad. My dad is in front of me and he starts hitting me, punching me in my body. He's punching me everywhere. And I'm not crying. Just look at him. I look at him in the eyes and I'm 15 years old. I'm bigger than him now at 15. My dad looks at me and he clenches his fist 
uh, like a boxer. And he looks at me and said, do you want to fight? And I look my dad in the eyes and I was like, the only reason I'm not fighting you is because you're my dad, but I could kill you if I want to. That's the last time my dad touched me. Like he would ground me, stay in a room, stuff like that, but he never touched me after that encounter happened because uh, maybe in his mind he, he was afraid of if I responded because at that time he could no longer hurt me physically. I was bigger than him and I could kill him. And I would never have done that because, you know, I know it was wrong to do that. And again, but, you know, in my mind, I was like, hit me as much as you want. It doesn't hurt me anymore. For a long time, it didn't before that. But that was actually the last time. And I think when I said that, it was a bit of fear in his eyes. So never physically touched me after that. How did you become a fighter in the NHL, that gladiator? Was that something that you were just used to fighting? Or was it a role you you were told you had to take? When I was a kid, it's crazy because if you ask anybody that saw me play hockey when I was a kid, I was a goal scorer. I scored goals, uh, goals every game. It, it was insane. I never I never looked at fighters when I was a kid. Um, when I saw an NHL game, I'd look at Wayne, Mario Lemieux, and I look at all the goal scorers, and that's what I wanted to be. And then this crazy thing that's called puberty that hits you when you're 15 years old, <laughs> that now I become a monster. And I'm like, how come I'm not faster than everyone now? How come I'm not more skilled than it? Because I was faster and more skilled than everyone was as a kid. But when puberty hit me, I was so much, so much bigger. I was like, oh my God. So I kind of knew I had to be a physical player. And, you know, I'm playing Bantam double A, so I was a physical guy. I still scored every game, but not as much as I did when I was a kid. And then when I was drafted in the queue, the coach went up to me and was like, you know, George, if you want a great career in the queue, you can. You know, because in the queue, I, I, my last year, I raised a point a game. Like, I could score still in the queue, but he's like, if you had fighting to your game, you're going to be drafted in the NHL. If you don't want to fight, that's fine. But you'll have a great career in the queue, and that's it. But if you want to play in the NHL, you have to add fighting. When he said that to me, I was kind of like, I never really fought. I, I hate fighting. I don't like it. It's not me. My dad beat me all my life. Like, I don't like fighting. I don't want to do that. But... Since I was a kid, I said I was going to be in the NHL. So whatever it took, whatever I had to do to be there, I did it. What was weird is that there's one point that I was wondering if the only way a black man could play in the NHL if you're a fighter. Everybody, in even junior hockey, everyone that I saw that were fighters, that, that were black, we were fighters. Yeah. So I was like, okay. I started to fight in junior. So then scouts and team could notice me even more. And because of that, I got drafted in the second round to play in the NHL. So I had it fighting to my game to pursue my dream to play in the NHL. But I hated it. I've always said that I hated fighting. I did it to be there, but it was never inside of me. And I figured if I hate doing something like that, I might as well be the best at it. So if I am, I won't have to do it as much. And at the same time, as I told you guys when I fought in junior hockey, after my dad said that to me, every time I fought, it's my dad that I was fighting. And I wanted to beat him. And that's how I looked at it when I was doing it. And it was an easier way for me to get into it. Because fighting with someone that didn't do anything, just stand beside you at face-off, the puck drops, and for no reason, you just fight. For me, it was very hard. Because I was not mad. But the fact that I could see my dad in their face, it made it easier to beat the guy down. George, you said um, in junior hockey when you were re reflecting on the other black players in 
that played hockey with you that they were all fighters, that it tended to be where you guys were were put. Did you talk about that or was that an unspoken truth? It was an unspoken truth because back then you didn't want to be a distraction. You didn't talk about that back then because it was hard enough to make it to the NHL that you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to bring the color thing into this because you'd be afraid of losing your job if you did back then. It's only till later that I kind of realized, man, it's weird that we're all tough guys, all of us, and we're all black. Peter Warrell, Peter, yeah. uh, me, Donald Brashear, there was very few exceptions, like Grand Fior, Mike Greer, Ensign Carter. Like, they came after. They were still I tough, I didn't know too. them back then. They, I mean, they were and, still, t- they were still and, tough, and, too. And they, yeah. still, and, and they still had to fight, but they were mostly skilled guys, but they still had to fight. Ensign Carter told me when he was a kid, when he started in the NHL, he started a fourth liner and they expect him to fight more. And he didn't want to and he has to be traded. And thankfully he did so and, and he was known for his points. But everybody that I saw, junior hockey that were black, they were fighters, all of them. Very few, um, you know, were there purely for their skilled. And that's the way it was. So was that because of mentality? It was back then and now it's slowly changing. I'm not sure. But... Uh, you know, and I, if I if we go on and on the list, look at all the names back then, and you go on to today, the majority of them are fighters. So for anyone, well, everyone that's listening, the Q is the Junior Hockey League in Canada. There's Western Hockey League, Ontario Hockey League, and the Quebec Hockey League. And George is, you're a good player. Like you could you could play too. Uh, you know, from what I recall. So to be kind of labeled and put in that must have been difficult. And that's not your personality, but. There's some tough guys in the Quebec League too. Man, there's some tough guys that came out of there, and, and I played with a few of them. Like Donald Brashear came out of there. What's that like standing across, or even before the game, knowing that there's a guy on the other team, whether it's junior NHL, you're terrified of him. He's terrified of you, and you know you have to fight him, and he's a killer too. I mean, you're both just as tough as each other. You know, in junior hockey, it was easy because I was bigger than everyone. When I was 16 years old, I was six foot three, 220 pounds. When you play junior hockey, you play with kids. Yeah, I got beat up my first year of junior hockey against a 20-year-old, but that was it. I never got beat up again. And if you look at my physique when, I'm with, when I was playing junior hockey, fast, I was bigger than everybody, so I was having fun. I was a man, and all the, all the players were kids. So because of that, I could overpower people, so... I didn't have any anxiety, you know, fighting in junior hockey because I was bigger than everyone, and most players had that anxiety. It's just that when I got into the NHL, that confidence kind of changed because when you're the bigger guy playing junior hockey, when you go to the NHL, there's guys that are as big and even bigger than you and has a reputation, and that's when the anxiety kicks in. Because every time you talked about Donald Brashear, I could talk about Derek Bugard, that passed away, but he was 6'7", 275. There's many tough guys, Bob Prober, that passed away again. There's so many former tough guys that, that passed away because of drug, alcohol, and abuse and, and stuff. But, but there's so many tough guys in the NHL that not even the night before, a couple of days before when you know that you get into a game with a really tough, big reputation heavyweight, you know, you can't sleep. You have anxiety because you're like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? I could die. And then you start thinking about it. You could be going to the movies with a friend of yours, and you see the movie, but you don't recall anything that happened because you have so much anxiety. You worry so much that you can't even focus on what you're doing. 
you don't even know what's going on. I would go sometimes days without even doing, knowing what I did because of a fight I knew I would get in, in couple, like the next night. The day before, I couldn't sleep uh, because I was so worried that, of the fact that, you know, what's going to happen? Am I going to die? Am I going to get hurt? Um, it was so hard. It, it was so hard. And, and that's why they say the toughest job in professional sports is finding in hockey because the anxiety that you have day in, day out, this is something that normal players can't understand because even if you don't get into a fight, that game, the anxiety that you have not knowing what's going to happen kills you. It was the hardest thing. And a lot of guys, to cope with that, they would take alcohol, they would take cocaine, they take drugs to numb themselves with anxiety because anxiety would drive you crazy. But I found my own solution to cope with that. And I think it'll be interesting to share because a lot of my peers, most of them took love alcohol to cope with that. But me, it was something to do with the hospital visit that I did. And I explained to you why and how that helped me and how that changed me. When I was a rookie, there's a guy on my team, uh, Doug Waite was uh, the, the superstar, the captain of our team. And we did a hospital visit, I remember, and I was a rookie and nobody knew who I was. So you're playing um, with Edmonton, right? At this yeah, time? I was playing Edmonton. And uh, we went to a room and the kids was, uh, the kids was sick. And, um, you know, he, he, he was just lit up the room when Doug Waite walked in the, in the hospital. I was teamed with him and another player, the three players that went to room to see some kids. And the impact that Doug Waite had with the kids was tremendous. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. That just the fact that we push a puck for a living and, uh, you know, just seeing kids after that, they could feel better. So the more popular I got because I was rookie and with the fighting and stuff, usually fighters are fan favorites. So it became really popular. So I got really, really popular with hospital visit because kids really loved me because I was the fighter and would go see them, would hug them and talk to them. And there's one time, I remember I was in Calgary and all the nurse in Edmonton, they all have my phone number in case there's a kids that want to come and see me. Uh, there's this nurse that, that calls me, is like, George, could you uh, come to the, uh, the hospital in Edmonton? There's a kid that, you know, that's a couple hours to live. And uh, if you could see him before he, he, uh, he passed away, his family's there and even the priest was there. I drove back as fast as I could from Calgary. I went to Edmonton to see this kid. His name was Jordan Clam, muscular dystrophy. And uh, I go in the room, and I got so much experience doing that because I love doing it. And uh, I go in the room, and, 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 and uh, you know, I started talking to the kids. I make him smile. The family's there. They're crying and smiling and laughing. Like It's kind of like a mixture of both. You, you know, the job, when you do that, you have to get into a room and forget about the fact that he's going to pass away. You kind of shift the attention and play with the kids, talk to him. And, and so he has a happy moment before, before he goes away, right? So I spent quite a bit of time there and, and wished him courage and all that stuff. And, and by the end, when I hug everyone and I leave, a week later, there's a, there's a letter that, that, that came out in, a, in the Edmonton Journal, and I still have it. And it was the aunt of Jordan that, that wrote the letter. And in that letter, she talked about an angel that visited her, her nephew, Jordan Clem. And she said that because of that angel, she was talking about me. Uh, she said that day, we weren't ready to, uh, to have him leave, but we got him a week more. Because what happened is when you go see a kid, the emotional boost that it does, you know the lining when, when you're dying and it goes straight, but when he's excited, it goes up and down. The emotional boost that Jordan got 
they got him a week more because of a simple visit that I did. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, I didn't give any medication, nothing. There's nothing that could replace machine or anything, right? It's just a simple visit. When I did that, when I saw that letter, I cried and I was like, oh my God, I got to do more and more of that stuff. It was crazy. And then talking about fighting, even though I had so much anxiety when I was talking to you guys, the more hospital visit that I would do, see kids fighting because they were getting heart surgery, terminal disease. I would see kids that other than fighting on the ice, they're fighting for their own life. So I would rationalize saying that every time I see those kids, it gave me strength. I was like, George, yeah, you have anxiety. Okay, tomorrow, yes, yeah, it's going to be tough, but what would you rather be? On the ice fighting someone or at the hospital fighting for your life? The more hospital visit I did, the more it made me feel like a human being because sometimes you view it as an animal when you're a fighter. The easier the anxiety was to cope with because I was like, I just saw this kid that was fighting for his life that is going to watch me on TV tonight. And I said, the next fight's going to be for you. Can you talk a little bit about the psychological toll? There's the physical worry of getting hurt or of actually hurting someone else, I'm sure. But what's going on in your head as you're knowing that a fight is coming or preparing for a fight? To talk about the, the toll and anxiety that, that fighting has done is uh, another thing that I would do, and none of my teammates know this, uh, and I, I don't think I've ever shared that with anyone that I used to do this. I'd get to the rink really early, like before everybody else, and I would pray. I'd find a quiet place in the dressing room where nobody was there. I'd get there where there's no players, no teammates, nothing, no music, and I would pray for my safety and the safety of the, the other person that, I'm, that I might fight, even if it might not happen. That's how much anxiety that I had. I was so nervous about what could happen that I would pray, like even during National Anthem, I would pray also because I was so nervous inside of me of what might happen, that it's all I thought about that I would pray so that I don't get hurt, the other person doesn't too. Because if you pray that you don't get hurt, you have to pray for the other person too because the goal is not to hurt someone, it's just to win, but nobody gets hurt because everybody has family, friends, kids, they have a life to live, right? And there's life after hockey. So that's all nerve-wracking that it was because uh, it was tough. It was tough and the, as, as tough as it was, you couldn't show anybody that you were worried. Teammates were looking at me, and even if there's a big guy on the other team, guys were talking about, hey, let's go this place to have, a, to, to have a good meal after the game. Let's go there. Let's do this. I'd jump in. Yeah, let's go there. I didn't think about the meal and stuff. I have to face a monster in a couple minutes. So that's what I was worried about, but I couldn't show it. So we had to be a great actor, not to show the anxiety, because if your teammates see that you have anxiety, you're afraid, they're going to be even more afraid because that's your job to protect them. Did you ever hurt somebody where you were to the point like it was hard to deal with? Like, is there anybody that, that you'd ever actually physically in a fight, yeah. I guess, you know, the question I'm asking, where, you know, there's, you don't sleep uh, for a month after and maybe even apologize or, or whatever? You know, the, it's a really good question he's just asked me. As, um, and it haunts me to this day, but... Brett Myers is another tough guy, and uh, he had, uh, because of fighting and, and everything, he had addiction issues. And he went to, uh, to a kind of a camp, something to go uh, to help him, himself with the issue. 
And after he went to, to death to clean himself up, he was back in the NHL. And uh, he was trying out with the Calgary Flames and I was in Edmonton. I knew him. We were friends. I knew Brent Myers. And uh, it was an exhibition game. He was playing his first game after rehabilitation that he did for his addiction. And his dad was there. The media, they came up to me in the dressing room and they're like, George, so what's going to happen with Brett Myers? I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, he said that he's going to go after you tonight. And when they said that, I was so mad. I was like, why would Brent say that to the media? Why would he talk about that? Like, that's, that's so wrong. And, and I was like, okay, but we'll see if it happens. It happens. But there's kind of an unwritten rules that you don't say that to the media. You don't talk about that. And I knew him too, so I was upset. I was so upset that I, and I was so mad at him that I stayed at a rink all day and I just wanted to kill him. I stayed in the rink all day because I had anxiety because when somebody says that he wants to go after you, it gives you anxiety. So you don't say that to the media because then I have even more anxiety because I'm like, oh my God, he said that? So now my head is fucked up and I'm like, oh my God. So I'm staying in the room and I can't even, everybody in my team knows that I'm mad and it's the first time in my life that I ever fought mad. We go on the ice, Brett Myers is there. I said, Brett, let's go. He drops the glove. I broke his face. He needed to get metal plate in his face. He had to retire after that. Hockey was done. I called him when he was at the hospital. I said, are you okay? I'm sorry and, and all that stuff. And then he's like, yeah, I'm okay. You know, things happen. I'm like, why did you say that to the media? Why did you tell him that you're going to go after me? He's like, George, I never said that. I wasn't a boss when I called him. I confronted the media and they said, Oh, we just wanted to have a good fight. We made it up. I handed the career of a friend of mine because of something the media made up that got me mad. And I fought mad one time in my life. And the result is my friend had up in hospital, made a metal plate in his face in front of his dad. Career is over because of that. So, yeah, I'll never forget that. And Brent talks about that story, but he doesn't talk about the media side of it. Uh, the, the fact that I got mad because of what the media said to me. He talks about the fight that handed his career, but a portion of what I just told you is in his book. That makes me so mad just sitting here. No, it, it is and so it's, mad. It's, it's, I've seen I see it today, and it's, it's disgusting. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, thank you. And I know that must be hard to say because I know what type of person you are. You don't ever go out to hurt anybody. No, no. Um, and I know Brant too, you know, and, and he's got a path now too. He's out helping people and yeah, you know, exactly. And so in some weird way, maybe all this was what, you know, I, I don't know. What was your most memorable, I can't believe I'm asking this because <laughs> I don't enjoy the fighting of hockey, but when you look back, I'm, I'm interested because you're constantly surprising me with your answers. Yeah. What's your most memorable fight? I hated fighting so much that I don't really have a memorable fight because, you know, to me, the fact that I never got hurt each of the fight was memorable, but no, there's none. I didn't like it. And uh, it's my dad that I was fighting. So it's not memorable. I want to forget about it. Have you made peace with your dad? And have you made peace in your, in your own soul with it? And how did you get there if you did? All the pressure that I had since I was a kid and the anxiety that I had in the NHL, it was hard in my head because for, for a long time in my head, um, 
sometimes I, I would think of suicide because of that, because I was like, you know, you're in a position that, yeah, you're playing the NHL. And then with all the adversity I had as a kid, I'm having a role in hockey that I could die. A role that has so much anxiety fighting that I have no childhood. I'm playing the NHL, but I'm a fighter. I could die every time I get into a fight. I have no relationship with my dad. I have all this pressure all the time. There's only so much you could take. That's when I, 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 I thought of uh, consulting because I was like, you know what? Everything I've done in life, if I go that path, it's all erased. It's all erased. All the sacrifice that I've went through, everything that I've done, because then I would rush lines again. I was like, George, like, you can't quit. You can't, like, look what you have, everything you've done so far. Like, that's crazy. And, but I explained that to so people could understand how much it was killing me in the inside because it was an accumulation of stuff that, you know, I had to find a way. And at one point I was like, other than complaining, George, you got to do something about it. Because what I'm going to do, complain about it all my life, all my career, and be like, uh, you're the only person that could change that. So I was like, I, I have to consult. I have to consult. I have to get, I have to fix this relationship so then I could see him, that I could manage, salvage something so then I don't feel the way that I feel right now because I feel I'm in top of the world being in the NHL, but until I fix the relationship with my dad and he could come see me play a couple games, I'm never going to be truly happy. So you know, be able to rationalize that in my head. That's when I decided to look for therapy and to find a person that could actually help me. And again, it took me a long time. It took me years to find the right therapist. And and I think it's the 10th time that I find the perfect one, but, but it was hard. It was hard. There's some therapists that I saw that, believe it or not, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. Some people cried. Some people, the story was too hard. Uh, for some of them, it's the hardest thing they've ever heard. It, I, I heard it all. I even started to think after a point if I was even curable because of the stuff that I would hear while I was in therapy, when I was telling about my childhood and everything. And it's just that, I don't know, maybe I saw some people that just started it. Maybe I, I have no idea. But eventually when I find the right one, it really helped. It made everything much lighter. Because, you know, I can talk about hockey and racism and everything that, that I want, but the hardest and the heaviest thing in your heart is obviously your relationship with your parents that brought you into this world, right? They're your legacy. They're your parents. It's the most important thing. And I know there's a lot of people today that that, that cut off their relationship with, with their parents, but and then they say, I'm fine, and it was better and stuff. But I was saying that too, but in the inside, it's not. In the outside, you want to make it look like it, but it still brings a burden that is so heavy in the inside that you have to fix it. I see my dad now. Uh, we're never going to be close like like brothers, but I make an effort to see my dad once every couple of weeks. Uh, for birthday, I go eat with him. I bring food. Uh, I help him out every time he needs something. So I, I, I do go see him um, uh, more. And, uh, and, 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 and it's, so, it's so much better because, you know, my dad's getting older. And I think one of the biggest regrets that I would have is, you know, Sometimes when somebody passed away and then you've never able to heal that relationship. To me, it was important to do it and, and to have some good years with him while he's healthy. And uh, I avoid the tough conversation with him because if I do, it's going to bring me back to a, to a bad place. And so I don't talk about how 
how we were raised and all the stuff that I know that's going to make me mad. But, you know, I just encourage him with what he's doing now. And he's now that he's retired and, and I'm here for him. And, 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 and another thing that I forget to say is despite all that, you know, I spoiled my parents when, once I played in the NHL, I got him a car, I got him a house. And that's despite everything my dad did to me because, uh, uh, the part of, of, uh, even all those years, they didn't thought that I was gonna, that I was gonna be an NHL player. They didn't want me to play. I think they really realized the type of job it was when, when your kids gives you a car and a house. You're like, oh my god, that that is insane. Because again, they didn't know what that playing the NHL for them. They don't know the amount of money. They don't know what that means, right? When you when you make millions and you start spoiling your family and your brother, your sister, you know, it, it was pretty nice. So that and when I spoiled him it was the time that I didn't like him but I still thought it was the right thing to do. But today, with all the counseling that I did, I, 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 I could say that relationship with him is fixed. I do talk to him, not every day, once every couple of weeks. And, uh, but every time he needs something, he could call me, and I will be there right away. Has, he, has he ever apologized, Georges? No, no, and he never will. Or never, has he ever he told never, me he loved he, you, anything like that, or just that? No, my, my parents have never told me once that they love me. A lot of... Uh, Immigrants, it's not like that. The love, the hugging, no, none of that stuff. No, they don't do that. And my my dad never did that. Even my mom didn't do it. It's weird, man. It's, it's and, and, and you know, when I was sitting with the counseling, we were talking about it. She's like, "Have you ever told your parents you love them?" I was like, "Oh my God, no! It would be the biggest discomfort." And one time, a couple of years ago, I tried it with my mom, and I said it. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> my mom didn't know how to react because she never said it to me. And then she said it too and then back and then she wanted to cry, but she held up her feelings. Man, it was, in my mind, I was like, why did I do that? Why did I, why did I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it was so non-existent in our family, love and hugging and all that stuff and encouraging and, and compassion that, it's never going to be there, and it's fine. You know, when my kids, I told them I love them, I hug them. I, totally, I do totally the opposite with them. George talks a lot about the impact his father had on his life. He described a cycle of violence in his family. George's father was abused, and then he abused George. Is it common for that cycle of parenting to continue? Unfortunately, yes. And there's actually a really strong scientific basis for why, why that does tend to happen. And you could think superficially, well, he got parented that way. So we watched and said, oh, that's what a parent does. And therefore, I'm going to parent the same way. It's absolutely the case that if he were abused, his brain is changed by that abuse, and that makes him more likely to be an abuser. But George was abused, and he didn't become an abuser. So what goes into someone becoming an abuser is more than just, you know, you were and therefore you are. It's really important to know you have an ability to change that cycle, but you have to be around people who are supportive and loving and, and actually recognize it's wrong and work to create that change. The mom was nurturing, but she let it happen. So where is her responsibility? Is that out of fear of herself? Because, I mean, 
it's obviously there's a strength difference there, of course. But where is the mom's responsibility in this to protect her child? And that's really tough because you can tell that George naturally had distress about that. Why didn't you protect us? But he found forgiveness in the recognition that she was being beaten up too. And she was abused, and he was cheating on her. And so she felt quite powerless. And in the role as a new Canadian, living in a a very racist environment, not feeling very safe, being abused herself, she was in a very vulnerable position. And I think that's what's allowed George to be able to find some forgiveness for her, is recognizing that what he didn't know was she was also a victim of abuse. It's very hard, though, for kids who are abused to find that forgiveness sometimes because they think you were an adult. You should have been able to. And it's a a lot of grace on his part to be able to find that forgiveness for her. So when you talk about the bond, I mean, that's your dad. That's supposed to be the person that you idolize, the person you look up to, the person that is supposed to get you through life, protect you. And you're supposed to have this bond with them, but you're, you're watching them abuse your mom and you. And how does that affect a child? I think it's actually much more basic than that. There's a science underlying this bond. It has to do with norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is a, a one of our most abundant... I think I met her once, actually. <laughs> one of our most abundant brain chemicals, and it's critical for attachment. So when you're a newborn, there's all kinds of norepinephrine floating around in your brain, and it, it helps you to, to bond to your parents, but it's also involved in fear and pain. So when you're afraid, you get a big flood of norepinephrine. It helps you to have that fight or flight response. It's associated with pain. And so when you're in a painful situation or you burn yourself, your immediate reaction is to avoid. But here we have an abusive situation where Georges is being hurt by his dad, but he has this strong bond. And what we've learned is and again, this is a lot to do with the the science of rats, is that the pain part of the norepinephrine equation is not as fully formed. That that bond and that the norepinephrine causing that attachment is actually more powerful than the repel that comes with pain. Many kids from that generation and that generation of parent, the parent never really ever said, I love you. It was just how they kind of grew up. And his dad never, ever told him that he loved him, what kind of impact would that have on a child? I mean, we know better today, but back then, you know, what kind of impact does that have on a child, good and bad, whether or not the parent says I love you or doesn't? I'm the kind of person, I guess, that I don't think the words are nearly as important as the action. Some people aren't comfortable with articulating, you know, saying I love you because their parents never said it. It was just something they never said. But All of their actions demonstrate every day their love. And so I think you can tell someone you love them and it be a very superficial, meaningless statement. Whereas how you behave every day, that you're there, that you behave in a loving and nurturing manner, that is what is most critical. So when you internalize trauma for a long period of time, how can it present itself later in life? So we know that any kind of abuse can be associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, but that's not the most likely outcome for someone who experiences abuse. In fact, depression, anxiety, substance use, other kinds of mental illnesses are more likely than someone going on to develop 
post-traumatic stress disorder. But children who are abused often have challenges with creating attachments in other relationships, as well as struggling with their mood and really struggling with a lot of anxiety symptoms. And I think that what Georges shared with us is the fact that he didn't just experience abuse at home, which was traumatizing, but he also experienced the trauma of racism. And further isolating him was the fact that hopefully most kids, if they're experiencing racism, are able to talk to their parents about, how do I manage this? But because he was afraid, if I talk about this, I'm going to get taken out of hockey, he was further isolated. And what I've learned about trauma is it is layer upon layer. Usually people don't develop mental health challenges because of one traumatic event. There's often a straw that broke the camel's back that leads them to become ill. And when you look back, you see that they just had early abuse. They maybe experienced racism. They may have been experiencing difficulty at work, just trauma after trauma. And finally, and sometimes a minor thing that just sort of goes, whoop, and leads you to actually have a mental illness. And that's not actually the biggest thing that happened. Maybe it was much earlier on, but there's often a straw that broke the camel's back. It seems like George has come a long way in his healing through therapy. He now has a relationship with his father, but he never actually confronted the problems he had with him. His father never apologized to him. And I imagine there would be some people who would say that confronting the problem head on and discussing all that trauma is the only way to heal. What are your thoughts on that? I would say that everyone who recovers from trauma is on their own journey. And I don't mean that to be trite. I mean that everyone has different needs in coming through and, and overcoming the impact of a trauma. When I learned about trauma therapy initially, the, all the psychologists that I worked with had this belief about exposure therapy, that you had to talk about the trauma, every part of it over and over and over again, the sights, the smell, every sense that you had. And by doing that over and over again, your brain actually rewired so that it didn't have the power over you anymore. And for some people, this prolonged exposure can be extremely helpful. There's a, a value for some people, but I also found that a lot of my patients found it re-traumatizing. And so the key part here is that Georges was able to find a therapist who helped him to recognize, I can't change what happened in the past, but I can change myself, the way I think about it, the way I feel about it, so that it doesn't control me. That ability to control your own thoughts and feelings and behaviors is the most empowering ability of all, right? I can't control you, Corey. I can't control my husband, my kids, my patients, my coworkers, but I can control me. And so the beauty of finding the right therapist to help you to control your thoughts, control your memories, control the power over you, how they used to be able to have power over you, that is, to me, the greatest gift of therapy. Then you don't have to go back to your dad and say, well, we got to hash it out and we got to duke it out and figure it out. He himself has managed to come to terms with it and decided through that, I would like to have this man in my life. I have to forgive him. I'm not going to forget it, but I'm not going to let those memories control me. Does that come with age? Some of it does as we get older, but some people are tortured their entire lives 
by the trauma of their childhood. And so if you're really struggling with these kind of memories and you're really finding it difficult to get past it, a really great psychologist, counselor who knows what they're doing because you can do a lot of harm with the wrong kind of therapy, especially when it's trauma-related therapy, with the right kind of therapist, you can actually overcome this. And sometimes you need help to do it. But for some people, they have experienced an, an awful trauma, but for whatever reason, they've been able to contain that experience. Uh, you know how people say you put it in a little can somewhere, a little box in your head and put it away. That may be what works best for them. The way that you know that you need help with trauma is when it starts to impact your life, your functioning. If a traumatic event isn't always in your head and always getting in the way of relationships and, and the positive things in life, you don't have to do anything. This is where bad therapy can come in as someone's struggling with something else and they, they feel forced to talk about something that they have in this nice little box over there that's not bothering them. And I've had patients get very, very ill because they've been forced to talk about something that they did not want to talk about, that they weren't prepared to talk about, and you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube sometimes. Once it's out, then it starts to affect them, and, and it can be quite devastating. So a bad therapist can do a whole lot of harm, just like the wrong drug treatment can do harm. Did you experience racism once you were in the NHL in the way you had coming up? Did you talk about the racism you faced, especially during your younger life, with your therapist? Did you work through that? No. Uh, in the NHL, I only had one little racist incident with Sean Avery in L.A. Uh, in my 13-year career. I'll never forget it. I remember I had my stick and I wanted to club him uh in the head with my stick, but I knew if I did that, I'd be suspended for life, probably even going to jail. So I didn't do anything. I just, you know, played normal shift, went back to the room. There was a couple uh, minutes left in the second period. I was dressing room and I was in Nala Land. I was sitting in the dressing room and I was like gone. My teammates looking at me was like, George, what's wrong? Because usually I'm always the smiley guy joking around and I'm like, I wasn't saying anything. And like, are you okay? And then, and then I was like, no. And I was like, what happened? It's like, I told him, Johnny Reed gave me a racial slur. So, you know, something happened, which I'll never forget, and made me so proud of my teammates. And, and, I, and, and I wanted to cry, but I didn't. In the third period, my teammates, they, they went after Sean Avery every shift. They, went, they jumped him. They went after him. They hit him to make him pay for what he did. And after the game, it was in Los Angeles, Staples Center our bus in parking inside because after the game in LA, the bus is waiting for us to bring us to the airport. And the LA players also parked inside the rink, like close to where the bus was. Sean Avery, after the game, you know, the game is done. So he walks towards his car. My coach, Craig McTavish, come out of the bus with all my teammates behind him to confront Sean Avery. I'm in a bus and I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh my God. I felt so much love in that moment, and I was like, I fight for those guys all my life. For them to stand up for me like this and to go confront him about what he did and how they didn't stand for what he did, and that moment is one of my most memorable moments in the NHL. All my kids, uh, all my years as a kid, I have never had anyone that stood up for me 
and the NHL to see my coach and my teammates, when an incident happened, all stand and go out. And to do this, I will never forget about it. It warmed my heart so much that day. When I tell that story, I could still feel the moment when that happened. I have goosebumps just hearing it. <laughs> hey, Diane, it's... Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk in hockey about there. there is racism everywhere and there's things. But thank you for sharing that story because there are so many good people out there and your teammates loved you. I, I know that. I, I, know, I know how everybody talks about you and how great of a person they think you are. And through counseling, through everything you've been through and seeing more and more counselors has obviously helped you. And Diane always says to me, there's a path ahead, which which I, which I is the truth. I saw seven or eight before I got finally found a way. How did you get to the point today where now you're talking about mental health, you're talking about you're, you're a leader for the Green Party at, at one point, you got into politics, you're vegan, you're always looking for things um, and searching. How did you get to that point now, past, post-career? Was it mainly counseling? I wouldn't have turned the wrong way if I didn't do counseling, but I don't know how healthy I would be today to do all the stuff that I do to help out because I'd be really miserable. Because the weight off my shoulder it did to fix that relationship with my dad, I know my story is particular and I know it's intense, but I'm happy that I find the right one. It took a while, but you know, it was worth it. It was worth it. And I'm so glad that I feel so much lighter by having made that decision and not being afraid. All the suffering that I went to, I don't want anyone to go through that. And that's why I hope always that sharing my story, whether it gives strength to people or give the strength to consult to people, because a lot of people in the immigrant world, consulting is a form of weakness. I've talked to my parents about consulting. Oh my God, never. They will never do that. Oh my are you crazy? We don't need... No, this is for crazy people. Old mentality, that's how they look at it. Hopefully my story will give people the strength enough that if they need to, that they consult because I played in the NHL. I made a lot of money. I was a fighter. I was a glazier. I needed consult. I was not invincible. I needed consult to be a better person, to feel relief to be able to help others, to feel better, to take a weight off my shoulder for all these reasons, to be healthier. And I did. And I have no shame in it, no shame of saying it. And I hope that if you listen to this and you need help, that you don't take, have any shame of consulting because it's going to help you. It's going to help you move mountains. When you take that weight off your shoulder, you can move mountains, man. It feels so much lighter, so much easier. It takes energy to hate someone. Once you solve this, that energy, man, that you have, you could fly. So what does 45-year-old George say to 17, 15, 16, 17-year-old George? What's the, what's the one major message that you wish you had known then? Man, um, you know, like, if I could talk to the, to the, to the George when, when you're a kid, is like, stay strong. Stay strong because I do believe today that your life, you have a mission because my life, was that's what it is to me. My life is a mission to inspire others and to help others. That's why I was born into this world. Everything you've lived, the adversity you went through as a kid is going to help others living through that adversity right now, having solution, finding the strength to, to fight through it. So the life that you have right now is going to have a purpose. 
Because my life is a purpose. That's what I believe. I believe I was put into this world for that purpose, to help others. Because there's so many obstacles that I had to go through, that I had to face, that a lot of people could relate to. I talk in tons of prison in jail sometimes to to inmates. And uh, when I do so, a lot of them, they grew up with parents that were beating them. That's why they joined gangs. And just listening to my story inspires them sometimes because in what age that they decided to gear the wrong way, and me, I stayed in the right path despite of that, right? That right there, life is so, life is so fragile, right? It's part of a moment. You can make one bad decision that changed the entire life. So if I could talk to him again, I'd say, you're on the right path to change the world, like to help others. And again, I know I'm no Gandhi and those people that really change and, and help millions of people. But if, it, if, if my story could only help, you know, a handful of people, then I'm happy with it. It had a purpose and they don't have to live an entire life like, like I've had. But I, I do find, George's, and, and I think you'll find the same way, that what I do today has, there isn't a win, there isn't a championship, there isn't anything that will ever compare to helping somebody and somebody saying, you know what, you changed my life or you saved my life. That's true. Do you feel the same way? The way I look at hockey, sorry for hockey fans if listening to this, but sports, we're entertainers. Absolutely. We're entertained people sitting in a couch drinking beer, eating chips. We're entertainers. We're not life changers. We're not, we don't, I don't entertain you guys. We don't talk about real issues. We're entertainers. What we're doing today, sharing messages, this is helping people in the real life, people that are struggling today, people that need help. That's what real life is, not hockey, not sports. And that's why what we're doing today is way more important than what we did. What we did back then gave us a platform so what we could do after hockey could impact other people in a positive way. And congrats to you, Corey, to use your platform to do so, to changing life, which what you're doing with Diane and everyone that are with you right now, which is awesome. Because this, the purpose that we have today is way more important than what we did when we were entertainers. So a couple of things that I just, before we finish, I do want to ask you, George, you got to tell me about your first NHL goal. Where, who against, how it happened. <laughs> how about I give you the first NHL goal and my, my hat trick? <coughs> you got you had a hat trick too? Yeah. Okay, I got I to hear all this. Absolutely. Okay, okay. okay, that's pretty good. Okay, so my first NHL goal, uh, it, it's not a really good memorable one. We're in Phoenix, uh, and uh, it's my first or second year in NHL. And I remember Dean McCammons going down the wing, shoots the park in front of the net, hit, hit, hit my shin pass, it goes in the net. <laughs> so yeah, They don't ask how, they just I, I ask how many. I celebrate, <laughs> but they give the goal to Dean McCammon. So I'm like, oh my God, that's my goal. But, you know, you kind of have to wait. Back then, you had to wait after the game to tell the PR guy that, tells the league that look at the video to see that, oh, okay, touch your shin pad, and then it's your goal, right? So he's got the goal, and it's mine. And I'm like, that's my first goal. Later on that game, um, I scored another goal. So now I have two, but now my teammates pick up the puck because they're like, hey, that's your first goal. That's not my first goal, but I can't really talk like that because I'm a rookie, right? So you don't say anything. So they give me the puck, but in my mind, I'm like, uh, that's my second goal. <laughs> so after the game, I talked to the PR guy and if it, and they go upstairs and yes, they see it touch my shin pad. So 
finally, finally, I got credited with my first goal. So I got two goals that game. But I don't have the puck of my f first goal. I have the puck of my second goal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great story. Fine. It's a good story. <laughs> but, the, but the hat trick story is the best one. Because when you're a tough guy, the only time you dream of scoring a hat trick is PlayStation. You know, there's no way a tough guy is going to get a hat trick in the NHL. So here I am in, in Edmonton, February 21st, 2000. We're playing LA. I got into a fight that game with Steve McKenna. I have two goals, two goals in a fight. There's a minute left in the game, and they pulled the goalie. So the crowd in Edmonton started chanting my name to go out there and because there's a timeout, and I'm like, I'm crossing my fingers that Kevin Lowe puts me on the ice. I could get a hat trick. He gives me a tap in the back. It's like, sorry, kid, I know you want the hat trick, but I got to put the defensive unit out there. He puts defensive unit out there. Yannin him a score, the empty netter. There's 26 seconds left in the game. Game is over. And then he put, he put us back, the fourth line out there. And I'm like, well, I still, I still have two goals in a fight. I'm probably going to get first star. It's a good game. That's fine. 26 seconds left in the game. The puck goes in their zone. And Jim Dowd gets the puck. He makes me a pass. I'm in the top of the circle. Aki Burr's in front of me. And I don't know why I did that, but I did a spinorama in front of Aki Bird, And it worked. And I'm alone in front of Stéphane Fizet. I do a backhand and I scored. I was like, oh my God. There's 26 <laughs> seconds left and I scored. The goalie's back in the net. I skated the entire ice. I went nuts. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I got a hat trick. I couldn't believe that I got a hat trick after the goalie went back in. It's the way that it happened. That was crazy. So I skated the entire ice. They, they put the rock song, Do You Smell What The Rock Is Cooking? Because the rock, the rock kind of sounded the same. So every time I scored, they put that music on and WWF. It was insane. Wayne Gretzky called me in the dressing room after the game. He said that you need 49 more hat tricks to break my record. <laughs> they got the puck. They did a trophy with the puck. Uh, the radio that I was working with back then, because I did some radio also when I played in the NHL, they got a big sign that they got the fans, the fans in the parking lot writing a message to congratulate for your hat trick. I got all the hats in a garbage bag um, for me, that three garbage bag of hats that I put in my house, which is crazy because a couple of years later, I find those three garbage bags that in my bag. So what is that? I opened them up. I almost passed out because it smelled like 50 dead skunk. You know how much thousands of hats in a garbage bag when it's closed in smells after three years when you open that bag? <laughs> I love it. But George's, we could talk for hours, but, uh, you know, I just want to thank you so much. Seriously, like, this has been one of my most fascinating interviews we've done. And, and hey, you know what? I love you, bud. Uh, you know that we're a family, all of us, the NHL alumni, NHL. Uh, and just thank you so much for today. And, and you're going to help a lot of people. But thank, thank you for all of you guys, for all the work that you do, because it's what you guys are doing today that you're helping sharing stories of different people that will be making a difference. And your platform is so important. You know, you have the mic right now and you're doing so and you're going to catch a different audience that I've never catch in your area, which is so important and is awesome. So thank you, uh, Diane, for your time getting up so earlier for me because I changed the time from 4 <laughs> p.m. Eastern to 10. Uh, and I have consideration about uh, the fact that you had to get up. So thank you very much for doing it for me because I'm pretty sure everybody could have slept longer. So I'm sorry <laughs> that I make you guys wake up earlier. But thank you so much for your time, everybody's dedication. And uh, it was awesome. And Corey, anytime you need me for anything, call me. I'm happy. Uh, same so. here, buddy. Speaking to you, uh, 
Honestly, George, it's been a gift. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed meeting you and uh, the stories you shared certainly provoked a lot of emotion. So thank you so much. You don't even need to read my book anymore. Pretty much, <laughs> if you're listening I'm to this. still going to read it. <laughs> PlayersTribute.com